though some of you may be familiar with uh, an Old Testament story about a guy named Naaman. So if you don't read the Bible, you're not an avid Bible reader, I'll tell you the story. But uh, Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram. So uh, by default, that makes him, this is a nation, the nation of Aram. It makes him a big deal. He's a commander of the army. But what happens is, is that this guy who's a big deal uh, gets leprosy, which in those days is not just an incurable disease. It is, a, it is a disease where you're excommunicated from all people who are remotely healthy and banished to, you know, uh, leper colonies, that type of thing. So it's a terrible thing. And his king, the king of Aram, in hopes that he can somehow find healing for Naaman, the commander of his army, he decides to send him to Israel where a prophet resides named Elisha because he's heard Elisha is doing some supernatural things, some, some miracles. And so he sends Naaman to Elisha. And Naaman arrives, and he arrives with, of course, his entourage and all the pomp and so forth of a guy who's really important. And then, ironically, Elisha, the prophet, doesn't even bother to come out of the house. I mean, that must have felt insulting. He just sends somebody out with a message and says, you know, if you want to be healed, go dip yourself in the Jordan River, which is a river in in Israel. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And Naaman is like super angry. Now, probably it didn't help that he was dissed, feeling dissed, because Elisha didn't come out to talk to him. But even bigger than that, he was angry because he felt like something dramatic should happen. There should be some, you know, like, like Elisha should come out and lift up his staff and yell, you know, God will heal you or do some amazing, some incredible thing. And he just comes out and sends a messenger out and says, yeah, just go uh, dunk yourself in the water seven times there at the, at the Jordan River and you'll be fine. You know, it's like, no, 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 that can't happen. In fact, he's so angry, he's so incensed that he decides he's not even going to do anything. He just turns to leave. But some of his servants intercede, and they basically say to him, okay, let's think about this, and let's, let's look at this scripture where he says this. It says, Naaman's servants went to him, and they said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? In other words, this is a courageous guy. He's a leader of an army. He's somebody. He said, wouldn't you have done some great thing? Uh, how much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? And so apparently it worked because it says Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times that as the man of God had told him, as Elisha had told him to, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. In other words, he experienced the healing by doing this incredibly simple thing. And he almost missed it. He almost missed it. And I think, actually, you know, this whole story, I, I know some of you are like, this is kind of fantastical, and there's a lot of stories like that in the Old Testament that are. And it's an amazing thing, but I think his servants were right. His servants knew that if, if Elijah would have come out and challenged him to do some great feat, like, go rescue this, you know, distressed damsel and, 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 and bring her back to her rightful family or, or fight a lion with your bare hands, you know, and, and nobody to help you. He would have probably stepped up to the challenge and said, well, that's what, that takes courage. That would, that's something I can do. That's something dramatic. But instead, Elisha just goes, yeah, just go dip yourself in the river seven times. And it's like he wanted something dramatic. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on this. But I actually think that most of us are afflicted with the same thing Naaman had, not leprosy. But this need for something good to happen in our life must be preceded by something dramatic, something incredible, something amazing, something, something that, you know, because we all want goodness and greatness in our lives. We all want to 
do something big. I want to make a difference in our world. But I think many of us, we, we kind of feel like, well, we're waiting for something dramatic to happen, so we'll do that. And we miss, and I don't want you to miss this now. I want you to hear me. We miss this truth that really what makes for greatness is just doing the basic stuff, the simple stuff, with consistency and commitment. Don't miss this now. What makes for greatness? You want greatness in your life? You want to accomplish something really significant? What makes for that is when you do the simple stuff, the basic stuff, but you do it consistently. And you do it with commitment. And you stay at it. You, you stay with it. Now, I think you probably know this, but when great athletes get interviewed, and they often are, obviously, and they move from just talking about the most recent game or what their plans may be or whatever, sometimes they'll ask the question, how did you get to be this good? How did you attain this level of greatness? And if they're truly humble, I think most of them would say that, well, they, they had some gifting that was given to them. They maybe don't know why or how that worked, but they have gifting that they used. But then almost inevitably, as they go on and talk, it will turn to the same thing. And they will talk about something nobody's really interested in hearing, but which really was the thing that made them great. It's called practice. Practice. Just doing the same, really kind of almost mind-numbing things over and over and over, whether it's swinging a golf club or shooting a basketball or throwing a football, whatever the thing is, they just did it and they did it and they did it. Of course, nobody wants it. We don't want to hear that. It may be true. It may be the thing that really makes for greatness. But what we want is some story like, well, when my dad was on his deathbed, he told me, don't ever deny what's in you. And so I've reached for the stars, and, and that's what's helped me. We want some story like that, something dramatic. But the truth is, it's doing the simple stuff. You stay faithful in those simple, everyday things that are important in whatever it is you're endeavoring to be great in. Those are what make you great. And if my years of life have taught me anything, it's that this is exceedingly true when it comes to things spiritual, to spirituality. Now, this is me, and some of you may disagree with me on this, but I'm of the absolute conviction that those who focus on the central, fundamental truths of Christianity, there is a God. He loves us. He came to us in the form of Jesus. He gave His life for us. He calls us to love others around us as He has loved us. When we stay focused on those fundamental things, that makes spiritual greatness in our lives. I actually would go so far as to say this. And again, I, I know I get, I'm going to get pushed back on this, and that's just fine. But sometimes I hear people talking about, I need the deep things. I want to go for the deep things of God. And they start wandering off after deep, deep, deep things. This is just my opinion. You give me the guy that stays on the basics any day. Because so often what happens when people say, I'm going to go deep, I'm going to get this, whatever, is they just they move away from the central, basic truths. And if you really want to develop your life, your Christian life, your spiritual life, it's about the simple stuff. I think Jesus confirms this in an encounter he has with a soldier. Now this is a scripture found in 2 Kings. Um, I'm sorry, I went the wrong way. Let's try that. And found in uh, Matthew um, chapter 8. And this, so it, it says Jesus had entered Capernaum. And a centurion, that's a soldier, came to him and he asked him for help. 
Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus said to him, I'll go and heal him, which was an amazing thing. And the centurion replied, Lord, I don't, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and, and I tell this one go, and he goes, and, and that one come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard him say this, he was astonished. This is like a non-Jew. This is like a guy who's not part of the religious scene at all. He's astonished by this, and he said to those following him, now look at these words, this is so powerful, I tell you the truth, I have not found, what's the next word? Anyone in Israel was such great faith. Now, I wasn't there, so I have no idea if this actually happened, but I think there was a gasp in that moment. I think they were like, what did he say? See, Jesus was surrounded by religious people, not always because they loved him and wanted to follow him, but because they were distressed by him, but they were people who had years and years and years of study and education and schooling and they were smart and they could parse a thought down to the nth degree and these are smart religious people and Jesus says yeah all them everybody I've met I haven't seen anybody that's got as much faith as this simple soldier who really isn't on the religious scene but he trusts God it is it is the simple stuff that makes all the difference. And that's why I love the Apostles' Creed. Now we've been, this is week five, and the last week of a series we've been in called This We Believe. You know why I love the Apostles' Creed? Because it's just the basic, simple truths of Christianity. And this is the statement of faith that TVC has adopted. What the historic Christian church for 2,000 years has embraced, we embrace and believe. And so we've been looking each week at this creed, if you will. And uh, I've been asking people, and Joel has done the same thing, to read it out loud. Now, this is not a church where we do that. We don't do responsive readings in here where I say something, you say something, and then I sing something back or whatever. That just never happens, and thank God for that, all right? But we are going to do this again, and this is our last weekend, so I'm going to ask you to show up on this one, all right? I want to hear everybody that's a Christ follower that's willing. This is the Apostles' Creed. Let's read it out loud together with a cadence. You ready? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. This, this, this creed, based on Scripture, written by early church fathers, this we believe. Now each week in this series, we've taken a small portion of this and talked about it. 
not so much delving into every little detail, but really kind of talking about the implications of what it means to believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, or in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We've talked about what the implications are of believing that is. And what, what we've done is we've talked about all of it except one piece, not the last piece, but a piece that I specifically asked to be saved for this particular week. And it is following the part that says, Jesus sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and this is what it says, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the, say it with me, Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Now when I look at this, I see three key factors. From there he shall come. He shall come, number one. Number two, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Number two. Number three, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do is I just want to tackle each one of these and talk about them a little bit. The first one, of course, is we believe that he shall come. He shall come. We believe that Jesus is coming back. Now, someone would say, why do you believe Jesus is coming back? This is real simple. (laughs) Because he said he was. And when someone rises from the dead and is seen by hundreds of people after having risen from the dead, you really should sit up and pay attention to what they say. Would you agree with that? We believe that Jesus is coming back. At some point, at some day, when Jesus returns, everything that we know now will change in a very dramatic way. We believe that He's coming back. There will be a second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, to me, This goes hand in hand with what I was just talking about. I am a person who embraces the simple truths of Christianity. And so for me, this is where I'm at. We believe he shall come. Yay! When or how, we don't know. Now, some people are distressed when I say that kind of thing. You know what? I've been doing this now almost 40 years, and I cannot tell you how many times over the years I'll have somebody come up, and they'll say to me, you know, they'll come up to me and they'll be like, you know, because they get worked up over this stuff. They're like, do you, be- do you believe that Jesus is coming back? And don't you think these are the end times? And my answer for decades now has been consistent. This is what I've said. Number one, I've answered, yes, I believe Jesus is coming back. Of course I believe, because Jesus said it. And if Jesus said it, I believe it. He is coming back. At some point, he is coming back. Jesus actually talked about this himself many times. In one place, Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. He says this, Matthew 24, 27. He says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west. In other words, something dramatic. He said, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said, I'm coming back, and it's going to be dramatic. And so I just say, yay! Jesus is coming back, and it's going to change everything. But then my answer to the next question are these the end times? It's always been the same. I don't know. I really don't know. And people will be upset. I've actually had people who've left our church because you don't believe we're in the end times. Look, can I just say this? From the beginning, even in the early church, and we have record of this in Scripture, people thought they were in the end times. And they thought they were in the end times for 2,000 years. Now, Maybe they were all right, and it makes sense because you know what the Bible says, that a thousand years is as a day to the Lord. So it's only been a couple days anyhow. So are we in the end times? I don't know what that means even. I don't know what it means to say we're in the end times. What I do know 
is that Jesus is coming back, and someday, and I don't know when it will happen or how it will look, but someday he's going to come back, and it will change everything. It will change how the world is. It will change how life for us is, for the living and for the dead. And this is what Scripture says. Uh, Joel read this last week, Revelation 21.4, talking about Jesus says he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Does that sound good to anybody? I, I, I'll tell you this. I'm looking forward to him coming back. Anybody with me on that? In fact, I would say there are many days where I'm like, could you come back today? Because it sucks right now or whatever. I feel that way sometimes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'd love, that day is coming. He will come. And it will wipe away every tear. And it will change everything. Jesus is coming. But as for when and for how it looks and for what it's like, I really don't know. Actually, that's God's business. People ask Jesus the very same thing. When he was walking on the earth, they're like, when, when is all this going to happen? And this is Jesus' response. He said, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven or the sun, but only the Father. In other words, he's saying, you don't know and don't worry about it. And so I don't. Jesus is coming back. Yay! I don't know when. And it's okay. It's all right. We believe that Jesus, just what the creed says, he shall come. And then this is what the creed says after that. It says, he shall come. And this is the part no one wants us to get to at this point where we're going to. He shall come to what? To, To judge the living and the dead. He shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now, obviously, the key word here is judge. Historical Christianity holds to the truth that there will be a coming judgment, not because it's popular. It is not. And particularly in the culture we live in, the idea of God judging anything is offensive to people, that there could be any kind of judgment rendered in any way. It's offensive. But we hold to this, not because it's popular, but because it is scriptural. It's biblical. There is a coming judgment for all, for those who are dead and for those who are alive at the time of that coming and judgment. Jesus talks about it this way. This is what he says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he's referring to himself, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then, if you read on with this, then begins judgment. Judgment which, as I said, is not popular. No one ever really wants to talk about it or think about it, but it's clearly in Scripture. And the truth is, actually, the little we know of life, and we don't know much about much, but the little we do know of life, you know this, you know this intuitively, that for every transgression, every wrongdoing, every sin, call it what you want to, every broken place, there is a price. Now, Joel talked about this a couple weeks ago. In fact, I would say to you, if you haven't heard all this series, you want to know where we stand as a church, listen to the podcast. Watch it online. Go to our website and watch it. But here's the deal. This is a law of life for every transgression, of which there are countless billions in the world happening on an ongoing basis. For everyone, there is a price. And there will be a judgment. 
Now, you know this. Let me just give you an example. Somebody hurts you. They commit a transgression or an offense. They wound you. They, they hurt you. You know that there is a price. It is pain. You will suffer the pain of that wound that somebody, that betrayal, whatever that wrongdoing was, there is a price for that. Now, you may say, you may step back and go, you know what? I will not hold that against them. I will eat that. I will pay that. And that's cool, but don't miss the point. For This is a law of life. For every transgression, there is a price. So the question is not, will there be payment? The question is, who will pay? And really, you can't read the Bible without knowing that there is a coming judgment. Jesus actually, again, talks about this over and over in many places. Here's one in John chapter 12, verse 48. He says, there is a judge. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and, and does not accept my words. Now, this is, this is strong stuff. But I just think we can't avoid this truth that there is a judge and there is a coming judgment. Now, we've talked about this over and over and it's kind of the, the central theme of Christianity and this church. That God in His amazing love said, you don't have the wherewithal to pay the price for the brokenness that you have as humanity. So I will come and become one of you and pay that price. And so we have grace. And the price has been paid so we can talk about judgment without feeling dread and anxiety and fear when it comes to ourselves as followers of Jesus. Now, some of you may not be, but followers of Jesus, we can talk about judgment and it doesn't make us anxious because we know that we have received the grace of God so that when that day comes, we are under, covered under the forgiveness. He paid the price. But what you have to understand is, is that though He said, I'll pay it, the only thing He calls us to do is to believe on him and accept his words notice what he says there is a judge for the one who what are these two words rejects me and does not accept my words in other words when you accept him when you receive him when you accept his words you become part of that grace covenant But outside of that, you are not. There is a judge. And that day will come. And we do have to do that. We have to accept Him with what little information or knowledge we have about Him, knowing that there is a God, that He loves us wherever we're at, wherever in the world. We have to accept that truth and not reject what we do know. Jesus said, if they don't, Reject my words. And all this, this is what, this is what you need to understand. Because I think there's a lot of confusion about judgment. All this is based on choices that we make. Okay, now, now, now be clear on this, okay? Some people view judgment, they're like, how could God judge people? How could, he, how could he judge them? And what they're assuming when they ask that question is that God is really making judgment on people when what the truth is is that we choose our judgment. He is simply rendering the pronouncement of that judgment that we have chosen because we've been given choice, see? So we make the choice. You know, I always find it hilarious because I've had these conversations. Somebody will come up to me and they'll be like telling me about, uh, you know, their 
their felony charge and, and how, you know, it went on their record and how they had to do, you know, six months in jail or some whatever, whatever it is. And then they'll start to talk to me about how angry they are with the judge over their failure. And I always think there's a certain irony in that. It's like, uh, the judge didn't do that. <laughs> you did that. Not the judge. And I know some of you right now are going, well, you don't know what my judge was like. He was an evil judge. He was, I, 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 I know there are side issues, but just don't miss the point here, is that it really isn't about the judge. It is about the choice that we do or do not make. Come on, you understand what I'm saying? We make the choice. We're in court because we've made a choice, chosen one way or the other on whatever it is. And the judge simply renders a pronouncement of that which we have already chosen. There is a judge. And we choose. In the end, all of us have been given a choice of how we live our lives. We can choose to acknowledge the reality of God and our brokenness and our sinfulness, our our need of something greater than ourselves. And sometimes folks say, well, you have to believe just like, I don't, I don't get worked up about this stuff. It's like, you see there is a God and you open yourself up and say, I need you. You have to do that. Because if you don't, you are choosing to have rejected God. And this is, some people think it sounds really hard, but there's, you can't read Scripture and not see this. So, we believe He shall come. And we believe He shall come to judge the living and the dead. And this is why the mission of TVC is so important. Is that we see ourselves as a serving church for unchurched people. We see ourselves as a church about connecting people with God. Because this is true. And this matters. And we want to see people make a connection with God. Amen? So this is real. This is important stuff to us. We believe He shall come. And he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And then there's this last one. I wish I had more time to spend on it, but let's talk about it for a little while. We believe in the Holy Spirit. So when you begin uh, the Apostles' Creed, it says, we believe in God the... Does anybody remember? God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. So we believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ... His only Son, our Lord. So we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ the Son, our Lord. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. These are God. These are God. Now I want to be clear on this. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. It believes that there is one God. But these three are God. It's called the mystery of the Trinity, and I'm not going to preach on the mystery of the Trinity today, all right? What I want to talk about are the implications of believing in the Holy Spirit. Because if you really believe this, I, I just, I got to say this, man. If you get this one, if this piece is real to you as a follower of Jesus, it will change so much in your life. See, here's what happened. On the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish uh, observance that happened a while after Jesus had lived, been crucified, died, was buried in a tomb, rose from the dead, was seen by hundreds of people, and then was taken up into heaven. After that, after a period of time, on the day of Pentecost, something dramatic and amazing took place. We moved from it being God with us to now being God 
in us. Now, this is the most powerful truth, if you can get this so profound, is that God is not just with you now as a follower of Jesus. He is in you. Jesus, speaking to his disciples. Now, remember, this is before he's been crucified, died, rose again, and taken up into heaven and all that. This is what he says. This is in John chapter 14. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. Now, the question they're thinking is, who is this? And so he tells them, he is the what? He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. Now, the world can't receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later and later will be what? In you. And that is a most amazing thing. That God... By His Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not just be with you, it will be in you. And if you think the idea of the Trinity is mind-boggling, this one leaves me mumbling in a corner because I cannot understand why God would ever want or choose to dwell in me because I know me. Or any fallen human being, for that matter, why would God want to do that? Why would He choose to come and dwell by His Spirit on the inside of a fallen, broken, messed up human being? I don't even know. But He does. Because on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came, now He was not only with His people, but He began to dwell inside them. And with an awareness of that truth, it changes everything in life. Jesus was saying, That by the Holy Spirit, you would now not just be connected with, this wouldn't be a texting relationship, this wouldn't be a, you know, FaceTiming thing. You are now intimately connected. He is inside you. And understanding that, and being aware of that truth, if we can keep that in front of us, it will change everything we face and deal with. Whatever, what are you afraid of right now? What are you struggling with? What, what's making you angry? What's making you feel frustrated? Maybe it's your marriage. You just feel like it's, it's just getting worse and it's not getting better and, you don't, and you're afraid. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe you're afraid of losing finances, your house, or some other thing. Whatever it is, you listen to me. If you are a follower of Jesus, inside you is the creator of the universe. And whatever it is that you are facing is not a big deal. Now, you don't know that that was really good preaching right there. That part right there. It is not a big deal. Because God's Spirit dwells in you. And when you remember that, when you you embrace that, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Not just some ethereal being that's out in the universe. We believe in a God who's not even just with us. But has chosen to dwell. I mean, it just... It just blows me away. Every time I think about it, it just drives home this this realization of how much God loves us. Because to be perfectly honest with you, there are times I don't even want to be with myself. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, sometimes I look in the mirror, I'm going, you are a horrible human being. I know some of you think you thought that about me too, but that was what I think about me, okay? I don't even want to be with myself sometimes. And yet God's chosen to dwell in me. Stunning. It is stunning. And wherever I go, whatever's happening in my life, whoever I'm facing, whatever I'm dealing with, I 
am never alone. Ever. Because as a follower of Jesus, He has chosen to dwell on the inside of me. I never have to face anything. And when you make the decision to follow Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell. And I don't understand how it all works. Oh my gosh. I just know that if it's true, and I believe it, then it changes everything. He comes to dwell in me. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, while we're talking about the Holy Spirit, I want to finish up by pointing out something that the New Testament seems to indicate. That there is another step in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I want to start out by saying that this one can be controversial and that I don't think this is a go-to-the-mat item, but I felt led of God while I was talking about this. Honestly, I did. I really wrestled with this, but I felt led of God to talk about this. Is that the New Testament seems to indicate, some people call it like a second work of grace, or, or I, I mean, there's all kinds of names been given to it, the infilling of the Holy Spirit or whatever, but I think the most apt description is the one that John the Baptist actually used talking about it. We'll look at that in a minute. He talked about it as a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now what this is, is this is where someone who is already a follower of Jesus, so they have God's Spirit in them. But already a follower of Jesus with God's Spirit in them, they come to the place where they're saying, I want everything you can bring into my life. I want all you have. And when they open up their heart like that, the only way I can really define it is like, it's like an immersion. It's like we're a glass and God's Spirit is in us. So like there's some Spirit there in us. God's Spirit dwells in us because you made the decision to be a follower of Christ. But now when you open your heart up and say, I want everything you have. I want it all, God. He, t- he just picks up the pitcher of the Holy Spirit and just begins to pour and it fills up and it overflows and it runs down the sides and then it comes up on the sides until we're literally immersed in the Spirit. And something very powerful happens in people's lives when they open up in that way. There seems, from my observation of Scripture and in people's lives, to be an uptick in their awareness of the supernatural and the spiritual. And it can be an amazing thing. And this is something John the Baptist talked about at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Take a look at this. He says, this is Matthew chapter 3. He says, John the Baptist is speaking. He says, I baptize you with water. In other words, that's a physical baptism. We did those last weekend here where people go under the water. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me, now he starts to talk about Jesus, will come one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry, and he will baptize you with the what? Holy Spirit and with fire. Something will happen. Now through the book of Acts, you see people having this kind of an encounter with God. And again, I know this is controversial. And people get all worked up about whether this is or is not something to be you know, sought. I, I just, I know my own life, my own personal experience. You can see in the early church, people who were already followers of Jesus have this kind of second experience. So, Here's an example in in the book of Acts chapter 8. It says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, these weren't Jews, you know, these were people outside that, but they had received the word of God. In other words, they had become followers of Christ. They had received 
the Word of God, and the Word of God is often used for Jesus. They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had not fallen. He had fallen, uh, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. In other words, he hadn't fallen on them in that way. So they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So they were Christians. They were Christ followers. God's Spirit was in them. But they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. Now in some cases in the book of Acts, you'll see where people you know, spoke with other tongues or something dramatic happened. In this particular, if you read on in this one, we don't know exactly what happened in the lives of these people. What we do know that it was so significant, it was so powerful, that there was a guy standing by who apparently was not even a Christ follower, and he saw this dramatic change in these people, and he actually asked Peter and John if he could buy the power to impart this to people. So he saw power. He saw something amazing. He saw the Spirit of God move in these people's lives. And with this experience, with this thing, something beyond just being a follower of Jesus, comes this increase from my observation in Scripture and in people's lives in spiritual or supernatural activity. And again, I can tell you, this is not anything I think people should get worked up over. I just think if it's there and it's real, you just open yourself up to it and, and let God do what He wants to do. That, that's, that's my feeling on it. Can I tell you my experience? When I was 14 years old, I made the decision to follow Christ, you know, like uh, years before that. But I had a like a reuniting experience with God, and I just was so in love with Him. I just wanted, I wanted everything He had for me. And I remember this event so well in my life because I'm 14 years old, young. I'm naive. I don't know anything about this stuff. Nobody's trained me. Nobody's ever talked to me about anything like this. But I went out back behind my childhood home into a sheep pasture that was back a quarter mile back. And I'm sitting on the bank of a creek that was wandering through the sheep pasture. And I just said to God, I want everything you got. I don't know what you want from me. I don't know what my future looks like. I don't know what tomorrow looks like. But I want everything you have. And in that moment, It was a stunning experience. It was as if God tipped up his pitcher of the Spirit and poured it out. And it was overwhelming in that moment. And it has been part of my life in a significant way to this day, decades later. And I never push this on people because I think the bottom line is if you want everything God has, then you tell him. You ask him. Jesus made this statement. This is pretty interesting. Jesus said, if you are, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, your children. He said, you, you, he said you're broken, but you know how to give your, take care of your kids, give your kids good gifts. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's an interesting thing to me. That it's about asking. It's about just saying, I want all you have. Here's the truth about me. I could make the decision that I want to be a decent guy, love my wife and kids, serve God, and that would be perfectly acceptable. I just want more. It's just me. But I want more. I want to be in the middle of everything God has. I 
want to operate in his plan at the highest level for my life. I want in. And I just thank you. If you do, tell him how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who, what were those words? Ask him. Ask him. And if you haven't done that, I just challenge you to do that. And people, you know, they get all worked up about it. They're worried that this thing happens or that won't happen or whatever. But God's an amazing big God. You think you can trust him? Either you can or you can't. And I just say, open your heart up. Invite him to do whatever he wants to. I want all you have, God. And see what he does. He's impacted my life for what it's worth. And if you believe the stuff that we see, bottom line, at, at this church, we're kind of simple, really. I know some of you, are you call me simple? Yeah, really? We're simple. We just believe the basic truths of Christianity. We believe if you hang on to those and walk those out, that you will grow and you will experience spiritual greatness in your life. We believe in God the Father, in Jesus Christ, in the Holy Spirit. We are believers. Amen? We believe. And if you believe this stuff, then what's the next step for you? Take it. You know, if you're not serving, you should be serving. In your community, you should be serving in your church family. Whatever church you go to, you should be serving in that church. And be engaged there on a regular basis. Be a part of a life group or whatever the church you go to calls. Be a part of a small group. People, I have people, ah, so my life is so full, I don't have. I'm telling you, the return on investing in a group is amazing. It's not instant, but it has an impact on people. Join a group. You can find out about that stuff for TVC out at the next step area, but be engaged in that. Bottom line, we believe. We believe. We believe in the power of God to work in our lives. Amen? All right, I'm done ranting and raving. Let's stand to our feet, and we'll uh, close with prayer. God, we, we don't even pretend to understand all that this stuff we talk about, how it works. We, we don't understand it all. We have seen you at work in our lives. And so we believe. And we follow you and we choose you. Help us to walk this out through our coming days. We give our hearts and our lives to you. Holy Spirit, come. Come into this church and move in a mighty way. And we trust you to do so. In Jesus' name, let's say together. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. We have people in front who'd love to pray with you. If you have a prayer need, come on up and let them pray.